So we are going to continue in our series in the book of Romans. Uh, We started it last uh, semester, and we are back in it this semester, and we're just going through one chapter, Romans 5. And so we're going to pick back up with that in verse 6 this morning. But we've already discovered quite a bit in the beginning of Romans 5. We've learned a lot about this idea of justification by faith, fancy theological word for just saying we are made right with God. We are declared righteous before God, and that is a gift because of the work of Jesus. And because of that, we experience peace with God. There's a reconnection, a reconciliation with God. But then that gives us a hope. We have a present reality that we embrace and and we own and we put to work in our life, but we have a future hope of heaven. And this changes the way that we engage suffering. And in verse 5, it says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul basically is saying, your hope is not going to put you to shame. You can be confident in your hope because you've experienced the love of God in your life. God has disrupted your life and shown you something of his love. But in verse 6, if that is the more subjective experience of his argument, chapter 6 is his objective, historical anchor for the hope that we have. And it is the death of Jesus. And essentially the argument that Paul is making is saying, you, your hope will not put you to shame because you've experienced God's love in your life, but even more, Christ died in history. The death of Jesus is not some ethereal, mythological thing that happened with the gods up in the air. No, the death of Jesus is a reality that was planted in history. It affected lives. Lives were changed. The disciples thought that they were, they, the kingdom was coming, and Jesus dies, and their world is radically changed. And they begin preaching a message of forgiveness of sins. Once for all, the work of Christ has accomplished forgiveness of sins. And Paul is is planting his argument. He's hanging his argument on this reality. And so let's read our verse again today. And just going to read one verse. And after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and I'll invite you to say, thanks be to God. And I just want to say, We read the Bible at our gathering because it's the most important thing we have to say. And sometimes when I preach from one verse, I'm I'm kind of like, it just feels like routine, feels like we're going through the motions, it's just one verse. But we do it on purpose because this is the word of life. Anything I say after this is just secondary to the reality of what we find in this treasured verse in Romans 5. And so let's read this together. And I'd invite you, as we read Scripture together, just to really posture your heart to receive the word of life, the truth of God that has been revealed in Scripture. This is Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray and ask God for help. Father, we pause right here because we need to. We need your help. And so we ask that you would fill this place, fill our minds and our hearts, fill my words with your personal presence in the work of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, we love you, and we, we want more of you, and we ask that as we consider the realities and truths of this verse, that you would minister to our hearts, that you would assault the lies and the work of the enemy in our minds, and you would push it away with the truth and life of your word. Would you do that, Father? Do that because of Jesus, and it's in his name I pray, amen. So I don't know if you've ever seen or visited an apartment next to a railroad, the train tracks. I don't know why developers insist on doing that, because it's like, why would you do that? Maybe you've lived in an apartment right by a train track, and if you go and visit someone who lives in an apartment right next to a railroad, your experience might look something like this. You're sitting down for a nice meal, and you're sharing stuff about your day, maybe stuff about your life, and all of a sudden, the building starts to shake. And this noise just overcomes you, and you can't finish it. You've got to pause. You've got to stop. And it's like three, four minutes. And after the train passes, you say, wow, that must be so annoying to live next to a, a railroad. And typically, what someone will say is they'll say, meh, it's not too bad. I'm, I'm used to it. It's just a part of my everyday life. And I think that when we come to the reality of Christ died for sinners, Jesus died for your sins, Christ died for the ungodly, that it's just become just something we hear over and over and over again. And it doesn't grip us and shock us the way maybe it would when someone new comes in, new to the Christian faith, and they say, did you know about this? Do you know how much this changes about my life? What, what is meant to be shocking and noticeable and visible in the Christian story has just become ordinary. And so wherever you are, if you're new and, and you're still gripped by it, that's awesome. You share that with all of us. If you've grown apathetic or, man, I don't see the connection, I want to invite you to lean in. We're taking two weeks to look at three verses on the cross and talk about the realities and the significance of the death of Jesus. And I want to invite you into it. Because what Paul's doing in his argument is he's saying this subjective experience in verse 5. He's saying, you, your hope doesn't put you to shame. You have a hope. You've been made right with God and reconciled to God. And that story is not finished because God has disrupted your life. You've tasted something of the goodness of God. You know what his love means in your life and in your story. But in verse 6, Paul goes to something that is historical, something that is objective. 
It is the anchor to our hope. We can believe that the story is not finished because Christ died. In history, God became a man and lived a life with a mom, with a culture, with a family. And he went to the cross, and a Jewish 33-year-old man died next to two criminals. And all of a sudden, the apostles come declaring, Christ died so that sinners could be forgiven of sin and experience reconciliation and justification. Maybe you have a, a coat rack up in your walkway and you hang jackets or hang bags on there. And if you've ever installed one of those coat racks, you know if you can't find a stud in the wall, what do you have to use? You have to use a little plastic piece called an anchor. And you drill a hole and you put the anchor in and it holds the screw in place, but it also holds the hooks in place. And what Paul is doing here in this passage is he's saying, hang your hope on the hook of your experience with the love of God, with the transformation of the gospel in your life. But don't miss that there's something holding that experience up. Your experience with the love of God is connected to the cross of Jesus Christ. It holds it up on the wall. It secures it. And this objective historical reality means that Christ died so you don't have to. Christ died so you don't have to. He had to die. And we learn this in verse 6. Paul calls us weak. He's speaking to Christians, and he says, for while you were still weak. And in the three verses, there's four words used of the people that Christ died for. Weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. And so what we learn about this word weak, that we were weak, it's probably better translated helpless, powerless. We were unable to make a move towards God. We were unable to work our way to the reconciliation that the cross accomplishes. Paul is talking to Christians and he's reminding them, let's not forget that we were helpless. We couldn't make a move towards God. We needed his sacrifice. We needed his strength for our weakness, his help for our helplessness, and his power for our powerlessness. Christ had to die, but he also had to die because we were ungodly. All are ungodly. And we're meant to see the connection between the group that Paul talked about in chapters 1, 2, and 3. He talked about all, all unrighteousness, all ungodliness, and the wrath of God is being revealed upon those. And he goes after the irreligious, but he also includes the religious. And what we learn is all stand and live under the judgment of God. There's no escape. For the wrath of God is over all, the ungodly. The word 
has the idea of transgressors, those who have broken the law of God. And this goes all the way back to the garden. All the way back to the beginning of the story in the Bible when God created the garden, the display of his creative power and beauty. And he created a tree and placed it in the garden and he told the man and the woman that they could eat of anything but that tree because the fruit on that tree possessed the knowledge of good and evil. It was only a knowledge reserved for God. You might be wondering, why would God do that to them? He's like setting them up to fail, right? Why would God, like, you're just dangling the carrot in front of them. But he did that because he wanted to create an opportunity for humanity to love him. In God's world, love is a choice. Love is prioritizing one thing over another. This is why love is so significant and so important and so near to the heart of God. But we all, most of us, know the story. Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God and they grabbed the knowledge of good and evil, thinking they could possess it and wield it but it ended up corrupting the creation. And God's good creation was infected with the curse of sin. And Adam and Eve were sent away, and death was introduced into the world. But God made a choice. God took action. And he promised that he would make right what had been wrong. He promised that he would save what what had been lost. And he chose Abraham, and he created a people to love and worship him. And he gave Israel the law, what it meant to live rightly. And he created sacrifices for them to worship him. But the story of the Old Testament is they continually and continually transgressed. They failed. And what we learn is no sacrifice of a sheep or a goat or a ram. No obedience is ever going to accomplish reconciliation with God. Christ had to die if we were going to live. And verse 6 is telling us, is feeding us with the reality that Christ died so you don't have to. And he also died on the right time. He died right exactly when he was supposed to. He had a schedule to keep. God had a plan, and he was moving it systematically and specifically through history. And this is so important for us as we think about how the death of Jesus meets us in our stories. Paul says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's two things that we see here. One is, we find the decision of God. God acted. God decided. God chose. He made a choice. And it was to save the ungodly. It was to pursue those who couldn't help themselves. But we also find the heart of God. 
We see the heart of God come out in the story of Scripture, but we see the heart of God on display most at the cross. A God who is holy and righteous, totally set apart, a supreme being who has created all things and is holy, pure, and perfect. And he must judge sin. He must punish rebellion, transgression. But he is a God who is willing to put himself under that same judgment. He is a God who is willing to offer up himself for the sake of reconciliation with God. This isn't by chance. Jesus wasn't caught up in some geopolitical conspiracy, backed into a corner, and God was like, well, like, this will work. I bet this will work. We'll, we'll figure it out along the way. There might be a few hiccups, but we'll make it. No, it was, it was precisely when it needed to happen. And we see this all throughout the Gospels. Jesus said, my, my time has not come. He's slipping away and hiding because there was a precise time when Christ had to die. There's intentionality, there's determination, there's a thoughtfulness in the mind of God. This is so significant for us. What this means is that Mosaic Church is not a coincidence. It wasn't an accident. Hey, oh, we got some Christians all in Richardson, let's group them together and make a church and call it Mosaic. No, there was a plan. There was a design. There was a burdened being birthed. That was one thing I realized. When I came to Mosaic and I met with people, the thing I heard time and time and time again was, hey, we were, we were at this church and we, there was some good work happening. We were excited. But there was something in us that just wanted something more local. And then Mosaic came up. There is an orchestration. There is a plan. God is doing something with our church. And that should encourage us. That gives us confidence. But in the same way, you are not an accident. Your personality, your story, your abilities, it's not by chance. It's not an accident. Christ died, so you don't have to. God has a plan, and you're a part of it. You're woven up into it. Christ died for you. Christ died for us. And Christ died for the world. Christ died for the weak and ungodly. Christ died for those who couldn't help themselves. And we want to remember this. Because it's easy to start puffing up the chest, right? I got this thing on lockdown. I know my Bible backwards and forwards. I'm mature in Jesus. I'm grown up. And Paul says, hey, remember, you were weak. You were helpless. You didn't know where you were going. You were lost. Some of us get this better than others. I do. I was a a drug-addicted drunk, a punk kid. And Jesus met me in a jail cell and started moving in my life. So I read something like this. I'm like, yeah, I 
I don't know, my life would be in a bad spot. Some of you know that. But others of us, maybe you've grown up in the church and you've, you were the good kid, right? And you haven't made a ton of mistakes and the gospel never really had that... Mm. We're on the same level. Paul is trying to help us understand that before we came to faith, if we never came to faith, we were weak and powerless. And the death of Jesus is an open offer to all who want to be reconciled and healed and forgiven. God sacrificed his son so we can become children of God. Now, what, what does this mean? There's a personal reality, there's a church reality, and then there's a global, everyone reality. Christ died for you. God sent Jesus to the cross with your face, your story, and your sin on his mind. You're not a, a, a number on a roster somewhere. You're not part of the whole. No, God, because he knows all and sees all, he knows your name. He knows your story. And he is remembering you as he sends Jesus to the cross. And he's inviting us all to affirm that, to remember that, to realize that in our lives. But that's not all. He saved us so that we could be a part of what he's up to in the church. God sent Jesus to the cross to create a new people, a new people who would love him and serve him and live for him. Create a new people who had a hope in a future of a renewed creation where Jesus reigns. And this is our motivation for fellowship, for fun. We should be throwing the best parties because we have a hope. This is our motivation for assuming the best in one another as we bump heads and get in conflict and feel like someone just dismissed us or said something behind our back. We assume the best because Christ died. We were helpless and Christ died. Christ has rescued us. We're on the team because of what Christ has done. But then also Christ died for the world. And God sent Jesus to the cross to tell everyone, everywhere, how he feels, thinks, and acts about sinners. The cross of Jesus is a declaration to the world about how God feels and thinks and acts towards sinners. His character never changes. He never lowers his standards. But at the cross, what we discover is a love the world has never seen. At the cross, we see something that is utterly remarkable. That God, who does not need, he does not, to, in, to keep his holiness and righteousness intact, he doesn't need to save us. He is totally righteous to judge us. But he chooses to love us. He chooses to rescue us. He chooses to offer himself in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue us. Christ died 
so you don't have to. So live. Live. Live like you have a hope. Christ died, so you don't have to. Live your life to the fullest. Live free. It feels, if, how come it seems like all of us are killing ourselves? How come it seems like we're killing ourselves to do good things, great things for God? One of the stories I hear time and time again, whenever I hear that someone has a dad as a pastor, I I grab him and I say, hey, I want to learn from you. And the thing I always hear, my dad was never around. He was helping everyone else, but he didn't really spend time with me. I never had a dad because he was a pastor. That's a tragedy. How many of us are killing ourselves to accomplish great things at work? How many of us are killing ourselves to be the best parents we can be? How many of us are killing ourselves on the altar of good things? Christ died, so you don't have to. Live. Live your life like Jesus died. Live your life like you have a hope. Live your life. Christ died for you to live, not die. And this is how we bring our hope into the present, is we choose to live. We choose to take risks, do something wild for Jesus, to slow down, work hard for the glory of God. Work hard at work, work hard in the home, work hard at Mosaic, but don't do it as if your life depended on it, because it does not. Your life has been purchased on the cross, and so you have my permission, okay? Kyle's going to come back, and you, you can blame me. You have my permission to live, to live your life like Jesus died and you have a hope. So go eat some ice cream, okay? Throw a party. Make love. Go for a walk. Take a chunk of money from that prize savings account and go go blow it on a fancy dinner. Live. Live life like you have a hope. Slow down. Put your phone in the sock drawer, right? Just throw it in there and say, I'm living my life. Apple, take that. (laughs) And notice the taste of food. Have a glass of wine. Notice the way your kids interact with one another. Notice the smells of a fall afternoon. Slow down. Live. Rest in Jesus. Because Christ died. You don't have to. And so live that way. Let's pray. Father, would you 
fill us with hope. You've given us a picture of a future world when Christ returns and all things are restored and it is beautiful and it is abundant of life. It's a festival. It's a wedding feast. And Jesus is on his throne reigning and ruling and we are reigning and ruling with him. It's a reality that we long for and we want. But the best thing in that renewed creation is the reality that you offered your son Jesus as an act of love. I pray that you would help us pull that redemption into our lives today, this afternoon, this week. Would you orient us to the reality Christ died so we don't have to. We don't live under the eventual judgment of God. We have a renewed hope. And so I pray, I pray that Mosaic would be known for their living. I pray that Mosaic would be known for their giving. I pray that Mosaic would be known as a people that know the tastes and smells of what it means to be alive. Oh, God, would you help us? In the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, amen.